Hey everyone, welcome back to Christ is the Cure. Um, before we begin today, I just want to say that we are extremely close to hitting our patron goal. Of course, I'm recording this a week in advance, and so I'm not sure where we'll be whenever this video or this episode is posted. Um, but we are really close to hitting our goal. And so if you are someone who has been listening to Christ is the Cure for a while and you want you know, to help it continue and press forward and expand and stuff like that, um, consider becoming a patron. Um, really, we need a few more in the second and third tiers. Uh, the second being the most popular because it's $5 a month. And if you sign up annually, then there's like a discount um, set up. And you have access to early content um, and things of that nature. So go to patreon.com forward slash Christ the Cure and look at that. Uh, look at some of the, the, the perks if you want. Um, but if you appreciate Christ the Cure and you want to help uh, confirm the renewal of the next season, become a patron. And then I'll put up a new goal to confirm the renewal of the following season. And usually there's fluctuation because people come in and out. And that's just the way it goes. Um, and so, yeah. So today we're going to be talking about a little bit of a weird topic, and really it's because the application is a little bit weird, but the topics are pretty straightforward. I don't know how to really explain what I'm thinking about that. Um, but really this is an episode or two episodes dedicated to explaining how Christians were not unaware of the content of Scripture when Christianity first started. And really this is to, to counteract a myth that the early church didn't know their Bible um, and didn't believe that we should, you know, lean in to the scriptures to understand the Christian life. Instead, we would just act like Jesus, and that would be the way that the gospel, whatever that looked like for them, would be spread. And, and this this idea is very common with a more progressive Christianity. The idea that the early church. None of them had a Bible. They didn't know their Bibles. They just acted like Jesus, and they loved everyone, and that's how people knew the gospel. Um, but this is really strange, and it doesn't make sense. And what it undermines, really, is the usefulness and the the dedication to the Scriptures today. That's really what it is. Do we really need to consult the Scriptures? Can we really understand them um, the early church didn't have them. We don't really need them either. We just need to act like Jesus, and that's how we do this Christian thing. Uh, there's a lot of problems with that, um, even defining what a Christian is without the text, because you have to know who Christ is, and you have to know what Christ is according to what? Well, to the, to the text. It's an Old Testament um, concept that's translated into Greek. It means Messiah. So we can go into that. But uh, this, the thesis of these two episodes, because I'm assuming it's going to be two episodes, um, is that Christians were people of the book in accordance with their historical and cultural context. That's a very important qualifier because the discussion gets shifted around to saying, well, the early Christians didn't have their KJV or the ESV. Uh, therefore, they didn't know the text. They didn't really worry about it. They didn't have a personal copy. They could read whenever they wanted. Uh, and so we, we don't really need to either. Um, so th that's what we're saying here is that they were still people of the book, but in accordance with their own historical and cultural context. There's a very different literary world before the printing press, and we have to recognize that. We recognize that Christians most likely, or probably, didn't have access to their own physical copy of the complete Bible, 
But Christians certainly had access to the contents of Scripture. There's a good qualifier, the contents of Scripture, and relied heavily upon them for faith, life, and practice while devoting themselves to the instructions of the book. And so the contents, all these two episodes are going to go like this. First, a general discussion on literacy. And of course, that's literacy in the ancient world, right? Uh, Reading communities and book culture, literacy further considered. Uh, We're going to talk about New Testament communities, the distribution of manuscripts, um, some early Christian conceptions of scripture, and then some brief conclusions. Now, there's a couple things I want to say before we begin. First, I am sorry for my chair. I, I'm, I'm looking for a new chair. My chair is kind of noisy now, and so if you hear squeaking, uh, I'm sorry. Second, all of these components that we're going to be talking about may seem unrelated, but then I hope to, to wrap it up at the end and, and show how they all tie together. There's a lot of factors, really, in this discussion, and I hope that, in general... This can challenge what you may have been taught about the early Christian community in general. For example, the discussions on literacy and the way that people would access literature is, is just different than our perceptions now, what we consider literacy, what we consider reading, what we consider you know, being people of a book. So we're going to talk about all that and we're going to show some recent scholarship on it and I'll recommend some resources as we go through if you want to go more into some of that. Um, so... Let's begin with general discussions on literacy. So generally, uh, discussions on literacy or even education at large in the ancient Greco-Roman context are heavily debated for the last half century. So people have been debating this uh, heavily in, in the last you know half hundred years. And really, this is because of the advances in those particular fields of study. So um, there's, a, there's a lot of journals you can pull up and a lot of discussions on it. Now, this... This discussion is usually aggravated further because what people consider literate and illiterate uh, differs, and even the way we think of it may differ from what another person thinks of it. And so that, that can complicate, or even how we, we label what literacy looks like in a particular historical context. Not only this, but there's a big discussion about the methods used to study this topic um, and whether or not that da- data is actually sufficient or adequate to come to the conclusions we've come to that, you know, only the elite could read and they controlled the text and, you know, the, the plebs or the common people, they just had to go along with what the elite said, right? Um, so there's discussions on whether or not the methodology that came to that conclusion are, are valid and whether or not there's sufficient evidence to make those types of assertions with certainty in light of other evidence. Um, for an example... Um, there's an assumption regarding public schooling or living within an urban environment was the key to literacy. And it's an assumption that can be challenged by the evidence. Um, To sample this, the assumption about schooling is challenged in that there were various means of education without publicly funded schools and more rural settings or farming settings, right? Um, And you can see this in Egypt. Egypt was highly agricultural, but it's also where we find the highest level of ancient literary activity. Um, so, Leonard Lesko is quoted in Brian Wright's Ancient Literacy and New Testament Research, incorporating a few more lines of inquiry. It's a journal you can pick up. Um, quote, If the ability to write was so rare in ancient Egypt, then it is equally impressive that both men and women would undertake to write letters to deceased relatives, both male and female, to communicate their discontent. Surely, they could have screamed to the heavens rather than take the time to scribble their messages discreetly 
on bowls of offerings. The fact that many people who could write did not do so might be used to lower a literacy rate unfairly, just as the large number of mistakes and inconsistencies found in surviving texts would unreasonably lower our estimation of their writing skills. So this idea that um, literacy was tied to a public school and that you had to be in an urban environment with these public schools to get this education to read and write or just write, however you want to conceive of literacy at this point, that can be challenged by evidence, right? So that's one example. Now, the original commonly assumed statistics that you might have read in a background book on you know, the New Testament or something is that literacy is first defined as the ability to both read and write. And the estimations state that only 10 to 15% of the population within the Greco-Roman world of the first century were literate. And usually this is the elite class that they would say were the, the literate ones, while the rest of the populace, the majority of the populace, since only 10 to 15% were literate, were illiterate. Now, Witherington states, quote, sources suggest that many more people than scribes could read. Scribes are individuals who would hand copy manuscripts, could read. For example, they might read road signs, brief letters, inscriptions, honorific columns, business documents, or tax collector notes. And that's in um, Witherington's chapter in Education in the Greco-Roman World, the World in the New Testament. Uh, fantastic book if you want to look at the historical context of the New Testament world. Uh, it goes into the Jewish context, Greco-Roman context, and it talks about um, things like the synagogue, literacy, obviously. Um, and we'll disagree with Witherington in a minute, but it's a great resource where he states that rumors of illiteracy are greatly exaggerated. He states, quote, both literary and archaeological evidence should have led to caution about such claims as, quote, Jesus and his original disciples were likely illiterate and could be described as peasants, end quote, or that, quote, Paul was an extreme exception in levels of education and literacy when it comes to the early Christian and their communities, end quote. Uh, were these claims true, it is hard to explain not merely why we have so many early Christian documents, both canonical and otherwise, but also why their authors seem to assume the audience have a significant uh, modicum of literate persons. Indeed, they assume some listeners were not merely literate, but also in some cases learned when it comes to the Hebrew scriptures. It is also hard to explain the evidence that Jesus could read Hebrew scrolls, according to Luke 4, 16 through 20, if one goes with the illiterate peasant paradigm. And that's in the same citation. And that's, and that's true. Uh, I've heard Bart Ehrman say Jesus likely couldn't read. And yet in Luke, he, he reads. And Bart Ehrman says on historical accounts, I mean, the, the Gospels are historical documents. Aside from the supernatural aspects that he denies... You have a clear text here saying that Jesus could read. Um, and whenever we get into reading communities, we'll, we'll explain more about how this should be assumed. Now, Wright summarizes the scholarship debate as, quote, identifying alone gauging the various level of ancient literacy is notoriously different. There was undoubtedly a spectrum of literacy and the simple categories of literate or illiterate, as well as the false dichotomy between oral versus written, no longer suffice in academic circles. And that's from the journal that I cited earlier, um, Ancient Literacy and the New Testament Research, incorporating a few more lines of inquiry. And in that same journal, uh, Wright presents some challenges to modern assumptions simply by stating that there are evidences that need to be further examined. Uh, two of these are discussions around the populace outside of their urban environments and without a public schooling system. 
uh, which I briefly talked about a second ago with Egypt. Now, on top of this, Wright points out that there was the existence of public games within the ancient world. And many of us know about this, that there was a lot of ancient games and contests in the ancient world. But what seems to be neglected is the fact that these included various literary contests. Now, Wright says, quote, In fact, one reference work specifically lists 28 principal public games mentioned by ancient writers, end quote. Further, when it comes to these events sponsored annually by the Roman state, quote, only on rare occasions did elite people participate in these types of games. Thus, non-elite entertainers and competitors had to have enough leisure time to prepare for, travel to, and compete in various games, end quote. Now, here he's speaking about how um, the assumption that these folk didn't have enough time to be literate because of work and trying to survive. Um, in his book, which I'll cite later, he argues that the economic situation of these different populaces, and he, he goes across you know, the, the Mediterranean really well, um, was not as drastic as we would think of it. These people had enough time to prepare for and travel to and compete in these various games, and they were not elite because the elite rarely participated in these types of games, and these literary contests are significant if we're talking about literacy. Uh, so the point of this rare participation of elites is significant because of that general rhetoric against early Christian communities being able to access the scriptures in some shape or form because the idea that the elite could read and control the text. But as we see here, this challenges that assumption directly. Um, and then whenever we get into communal reading events um, within the first century, this will do so as well and, and quite convincingly. Now, to further discuss the lack of discussion on evidences for literacy in the ancient world, Wright brings forth a funerary monument. I'm not going to pretend that I can pronounce this correctly. It's Quintus Sulpius Maximus, uh, typically called QSM, which I will be calling it QSM, and it's a name. And it was raised in AD 94 by the parents of the 11-year-old boy QSM. Now, as it goes, this boy, who was 11, competed in a poetry contest with 52 other contestants in the games of AD 94. Uh, on the monument, this, this funerary monument that the parents erected, the poem is provided along with a Latin introduction and a Greek saying. Now, here are some of the things that Wright highlights about this as it relates to literacy. Um, first, the event had 52 contestants who were likely non-elite as the elite hardly participated, with some rare exceptions, one of those being Nero, famously. Um, with this, there are records of these literary contests and participants, including evidence of other children winning literary competitions. In addition to having evidence of the winners of such events, we actually have records of the losers of such contests. Now, the second point, uh, QSM, quote, was not born from elite parents, but rather manumitted slaves from a lower socioeconomic stratum, end quote. Not only is this significant and that his parents of the child were not elite, but also in the fact that the child's parents were freed men, which retained the social stigma of being slaves within the Greco-Roman system of honor and prestige. And you can see Hellerman uh, embracing shared ministry, uh, power and status in the early church and why it matters today. It's a great, I recommended it whenever I was talking about Philippians way back when. Uh, excellent book, Insight into the, the Colony of Philippi, Greco-Roman honor and prestige, and how Paul uses that for his um, discussion. But ultimately, what we find is that the one who was a freed man from, from slaves had the same stigmas as a slave and sometimes was worse off than a slave. Um, further, the boy reached the highest level 
of formal education at only 11 years old, while many scholars believe that it was at the age of 15 that this type of education would even begin. Now, Wright simply asks, quote, Thus, what best explains QSM's extensive literary and oral abilities and his intimate knowledge of and access to numerous literary sources if he was a non-elite who had not attended a school and certainly not a publicly funded one? Third, Wright mentions, The monument's design and placement suggest that it is meant to be read and could be read by the general public with an inscription that explicitly asks all to read it when they pass by. He states, quote, The monument shows QSM holding an open roll that shows the last lines of his poem. What is interesting, though, is that the text on the roll is written so that it can be read by those looking at the monument rather than by QSM himself. It seems to be the artist's way of making sure that all the bystanders could also read the last portion of the poem. What best accounts for why QSM's parents would spend the money and take the time to place such a long text in a highly visible area for the general populace to see if only very few elite who would not have cared anyway could read it, end quote. So while this isn't exhaustive of the monument's significance, it's an interesting find. I put up a little post on um, social media a couple weeks back um, just talking about it briefly. It is enough to show that this type of evidence should be considered when we're thinking about literacy um, within the first and second centuries, which, of course, is when the church um, begins to arise. Now, inscriptions and papyri abound. Papyri being, of course, the ancient paper that was used for writing. Um, and we have, out of 1.5 million inscriptions and papyri, 72,000 published. So 72,000 out of 1.5 million have been published, which means that there's still a lot that hasn't been examined, which could challenge the methodology of previous studies that concluded a low literacy rate within early centuries of Christianity. Now, this doesn't account for groups such as associations within the Greco-Roman world, which if you're interested in that, I recommend you look it up. Um, I believe the World of the New Testament book that I mentioned before talks about associations. Um, but associations were basically like guilds where you would you would go with your group and you would be part of a group based off of occupation or even a cult. And within these associations, you could find uh, that they took notes, that they wrote and recited speeches, they performed different literary works, they documented meetings, reported finances, uh, recording members and donors, they had monetary fines being documented, and so on and so forth. Now, Wright points out additionally, quote, there are explicit statements that everyone, passerby, slaves, rulers, etc., were expected to read and heed various inscriptions, end quote. Uh, and this really goes into, if you study the Roman colony of Philippi in particular, uh, inscriptions abounded. And, and the idea was you display your honors on these inscriptions to show how great you are. Like that, that's boiling it down. And these inscriptions, it would be a little bit silly to have these inscriptions where it has all your titles and honors if folk who were passing by couldn't read them, right? So there's, there's a lot of different topics that you can go into. So this all essentially highlights that in the Greco-Roman world, literacy uh, could very much be higher than what has been previously stated and assumed. Now, many scholars have now argued this with compelling evidence, just as I mentioned with Witherington. Now, even if the ability for all to read wasn't present in that time period, the activity of communal readings of literary works, which also challenges the literary discussion, would show how people could be a people of the book 
without even being literate. And we'll talk about that now. Um, so we're going to talk about reading communities, book culture, and literary um, literacy further considered. Now, the practice of what's called communal readings or the recitation of literary works is well documented, uh, yet often neglected in the study of Christianity. What I'm going to recommend here is that if you're interested in a an extensive discussion on communal readings, you want to pick up Wright's book, Communal Reading in the Time of Jesus, a window into early Christian reading practices. Uh, this book goes into great detail documenting all this evidence of communal reading events, which also, again, challenges the idea of low literacy. Now, on top of what Wright has said, that this has been neglected, these communal reading events have been neglected in terms of early Christianity, what is often missed by most people is that oral proclamation was considered a form of publication. Okay, So whenever a text would be orally proclaimed, that was publication, and to tamper with a book that was communally read would be pointed out by those in the community. And so this guarded the text from being altered. And there's a lot of ancient writers who would complain about text has been altered. And so we find basically text being more controlled because of the way that they viewed publication back then. Now we'll talk a little bit about that as we go forward too. So ultimately this neglect is unfortunate because this practice seems to have permeated the culture of the New Testament area and has many implications on the issues such as the canon and transmission of the text. In fact, whenever I was thinking through it, uh, this has a lot of implications on the canon, um, but we're not going to have time for that. And we, we talked about the canon in the Apocrypha episodes. Um, so not only can such practices of communal reading be documented outside the context of Judaism and Christianity in the first century world, but um, Wright documents it in a broad geographical scope. We talk Palestine, Greece, Syria, Asia Minor, Italy, Gaul, um, and North Africa. Now, this coupled with the habits of Jews going into the first century, from which Christians adopted their practices, we find a very text-centric community. Now, often the emphasis on the transmission of the contents of Christianity is placed within the oral proclamation, right? I just mentioned that proclamation was publication, but the evidence suggests that, quote, there was never a time in early Christianity that the transmission was exclusively oral, end quote. Now, if you're wondering what um, transmission is, transmission is the movement of a text from one source to another, essentially. Um, hopefully, those who are specialized find my um, simplified definition adequate. And that was right. Again, communal reading of the new time of Jesus. And I'll, and I'll be citing that until I say otherwise. So Wright says, quote, written texts and oral traditions interacted in dynamic ways. Both eyes and ears were involved. Both writer and speaker were heralds of God. And in any case, the range of flexibility within both oral and written channels of any tradition essentially diminishes and stability increases when and where to frequently touch. So essentially, whenever a text or content was transmitted orally or written, it would stabilize or would be stabilized as those coincided. Um, additionally, the social and cultural setting often can exaggerate how we picture the world of the first century, right? Um, the quote, the overly simplistic divide between the rich and the poor, the elite and sub elite seems to be a miss end quote. And that's really, we, we have these really strong lines that we throw into these, um, these cultures yet 
While one can read on the social, economic, and cultural setting that Wright frames well in his work, we're going to bypass that issue here. So he talks about, again, the social, economic, and cultural settings in these geographic locations. And, and you can go read more on that if you want to in that same book. But we're not going to talk about that here. Now, when it comes to discussion on literacy, because that's what we're really focusing in on, it has been generally assumed that folk could not practice, could not be literate, because books are presented as being difficult to attain and expensive in the ancient world. In fact, uh, people would say that the, the parchment was expensive because this was paper made out of animal skin and papyrus was too expensive as that was made from a plant. Um, while from what I understand, parchment would be more expensive, papyrus was not. Um, and this idea that these, these books and materials were too expensive for people to attain is constantly just restated. Now, Mead and Gurry in their fresh publication, Scribes and Scripture, states that the same thing. Now, I'm not sure if this is what they view overall, because in their example, um, they state that uh, books were too expensive, and they use Codex Sinaiticus, the complete Greek Bible, and parchment as their example, um, granting that parchment would be more expensive, and the formation or the writing of a complete Greek Bible, Old Testament through New Testament, would be very expensive. This doesn't necessarily mean that papyrus, which is vastly different in its production than parchment, would be equally as expensive. Which, by the way, that book, Scribing Scriptures, amazing. Brand new publication, put about Crossway. Mead and Gurry are both excellent. Um, if you want to get an introduction into canon, how the text of the Bible um, came to us today, they talk about the, the Hebrew, they talk about the Greek, they talk about, um, they talk about the copying process, they talk about scribes, they talk about uh, canonization of the Old Testament and the New Testament, and then they also talk about translations and it's a great introductory work, and it's a nice cover, and it feels nice too, which is important for me. Um, anyway, what was I saying? So yeah, um, their example doesn't necessarily indicate that general writing materials like papyrus would be expensive. Porter and Pitts, for example, say simply, quote, papyrus, the paper of the ancient world, was widely available and not expensive, end quote. And that's in uh, Porter and Pitts's journal, Paul's Bible, his education, and his access to the scriptures of Israel. Now, T.C. Skeet, in his journal, Papyrus, Cheap or Expensive, concludes his research, stating, quote, We have seen that the opinion of Willem that Papyrus is relatively expensive was based primarily on his belief that is now universally discredited. The additional arguments with which he attempted to support his thesis have now been considered individually and have been found either false or greatly exaggerated. Uh, and that's in uh, Skeet. Was papyrus regarded as cheap or expensive in the ancient world? And you can pick up that journal um, if you want to dig for it. Now, Skeet, within his research, points out, quote, For those that believe that papyrus was expensive, the invention and development of the Codex is of crucial importance, since it offered the possibility of reducing the amount of papyrus used in manufacturing of a book by almost 50%. So, end quote. So, before we further on his quote, now, in the ancient world, you had the form of a scroll, right, where you would unroll it and you would read it, or you'd have a codex, and a codex is like the first book form. You'd have sleeves, or sheets, rather, of papyrus that you would sew together to make a book, and it was essentially the book form. Um, so Ski is saying, those who believe that papyrus was expensive, the invention and the development of the codex, that is the book form, is crucial um, since it offered the possibility of reducing the amount of papyrus used in the manufacture of a book by almost 50%. So that's the context. He's saying that those who believe that papyrus is expensive, 
uh, the codex is important because it would reduce the cost um, because of the amount of papyrus used to manufacture a book. Um, he goes on to say, quote, we might therefore have expected that the new format, that is the codex, would be speedily and enthusiastically adopted. We might have also expected that it would be welcomed by professional scribes and book dealers since it offered a chance of reducing their costs and therefore encouraging sales, but the result was far from otherwise. It took some 200 years from the time of its introduction for the Codex to achieve equality with the role, and another 200 or more years before finally replacing it. So Skeet here basically says that since the Codex would offer the ability to reduce the cost of producing a literary work because they use less papyrus, you would expect the codex to be adopted very quickly, but it took 400 years before finally replacing the scroll or the roll papyrus entirely. Now, he, he goes on to say, um, using Homer's work, the ancient Greek author or author's in the Gospel of the New Testament, Skeet concludes, quote, Despite all that has been claimed for the economy of the Codex, when a manuscript came to be written, no account whatever was paid to the amount of papyrus consumed. Indeed, some of the Gospel codices are constructed in such a way that the text could have been easily written on a roll using the same amount of papyrus, end quote. So basically, the idea that the Codex offered a cheaper alternative to the, the scroll or the roll doesn't really hold up because the same amount of papyrus would be used in either case. He shows this in, in a number of texts. Uh, and his cl concluding example, to just give one example, he shows that in a manuscript that you had a lavish use of papyrus, the text only occupies 30% of the total page area, leaving 70% blank. And he says, quote, thus, wherever papyrus might have been regarded as expensive, it was certainly not in the field of book production, end quote. And that really boils down to papyrus was used in a lot of different areas. So, so here's where we're going to kind of go back. While it has been granted that the assumption has been that papyrus and book production were too expensive for common use, many scholars disagree and on good grounds. Well, I think anyways. Now, Porter and Pitts and their article that I cited earlier cites Easterling and Knox, book and readers, um, and they point out that the cost of getting a book copied ranged really to just one to six days pay. Uh, Kenyon continues pointing out that book culture was thriving since the 4th century BC, where there were considerable quantities of cheap and easily accessible books to be found. And that's in Kenyon Books and Readers, page 24. Additionally, within the Greco-Roman world, Greek literature was current among the populace, with the literature of Homer being the major point of reference for education. And that's also Kenyon Books and Readers. Additionally, quote, at Rome, it was possible to purchase Greek books and Latin books, newly authored works and established titles, recently copied manuscripts and antiques, books written to order, as well as books ready-made, and eventually codices as well as book rolls. And that's in um, White Bookshops in the Literary Culture of Rome, Ancient Literacies, um, page 268 through 287. Kim Haynes Etson Quoted by Wright states, quote, there's no reason to suppose that literate Christians who wished for copies of literature had substantially different resources from those other literate folk in the empire. This is all to say so far that what we typically think of as literacy, access to ancient books and the materials to make books as being unaccessible to the majority of people um, can and should be challenged. Now, with that said, the qualification seems necessary. Widespread agreement can be found um, and I'm going to cite Mead and Gurry again, 
when they state, quote, until the invention of the printing press, most Christians never owned a complete copy of the Bible. Even if they owned one, they did not have the whole of it between two covers, end quote. And again, that's scribes and scriptures, uh, scribe and scripture, the amazing story of how we got the Bible, page 87. So um, again, once you note that most everyone agrees and is aware of the fact that most Christians never owned a complete copy of the Bible because of the cost and labor. But this does not mean, especially in light of the communal readings of the early church, that they did not know or have access to or rely on the fundamental contents of the Bible or scripture. This is the same thing as like our ABCs. I can have the content of the alphabet without having a written document of the alphabet. You can have the contents of certain songs without having the written lyrics of a song. Like, this is just logic, right? We, we can figure that out. Um, so this is to say that the early Christians would have the Bible and the teachings of the Bible, the Old Testament and the apostles, even if they didn't necessarily have the contents of Galatians or Revelation because they were in a different location. But they still had fundamental access to that which was already set in stone, that is the Hebrew canon, and then the, the works of the apostles and the message of the gospel and the oral traditions and literary traditions that were already spreading. Um, and this is especially prominent whenever we consider the high mobility and travel that the Roman world allowed, uh, along with the, the missionary mindset of Christians. Further, the intentionality behind most of the New Testament documents is that they should be read in communities and distributed, and that the Christians, who were predominantly Jews within the early church, carried on the book-centric ideology that they had from their Jewish predecessors. Um, so this, of course, assumes the communal reading of literature. Yet, as we have spoken to previously, the literary contests of the ancient world have given us some structure to work from. So here I'll be relying on Wright's work, more quoting some sources that should be uh, attributed to his research, not my own, and he should be consulted. I just want to point that out. And so going forward... That's, that's who I'm relying on here. So on the subject of public communal readings, a French historian of the Greco-Roman world describes public readings as mania, and it was a chaos of deafening sound. Further, he describes, quote, where there were as many writers as listeners, or as we should say, as many authors as readers, and where two roles were indistinguishable, literature suffered from an incurable tumor, end quote. So the French historian's depiction or description serves as a summary of various Roman authors who, quote, felt crushed by the sheer volume of communal reading events, end quote. Pliny, an ancient writer, expresses that these events are the trend of the day as well in saying, quote, this year has raised a fine crop of poets. There was scarcely a day throughout the month of April when someone was not giving a public reading, end quote. Wright summarizes as following, quote, Communal reading events in the context of ancient book culture were instrumental in social networking. Invitations were sent out. Children were involved. Women were involved. Literary contests existed. Certain authors criticized communal reading events as nothing more than popular pandering. Some authors felt completely cut off from society when they were not reading communally. Other authors were content to send representatives to read their works to others. Other writers roamed around mocking communal reading events. Satirical writers criticized communal reading events Notaries attempted to write down everything they heard. Local publications discussed communal reading events. Uh, there were ghost writing services available. There were historical reporters. There were artistic representations of communal reading events. There were times when participants 
rewrote their let their text on the spot during communal reading events. There were other ways of individual control over text before being performed or being published. There were scripts sold to actors, even circulated as pamphlets. There were times when members of the audience would take notes and attempt to plagiarize the work of the presenter after the event. Forgeries existed, book dealers existed, bookstores existed, authors generated various kinds of reading lists for people and requested others. Uh, bibliographies were provided upon request. Uh, Pre-publication drafts were delivered at certain gatherings with editorial purposes in mind. There were grammar books um, and lexicons to assist readers. Various kinds of public libraries existed, both ancient and modern. Substantial personal libraries existed. Books were often given to friends as gifts. Elite members of society sometimes pretended they were more highly educated than they really were. And some people thought memorizing was a waste of time because they had written text, end quote. And again, that's from, <laughs> that was a long one. Uh, and I kind of abridged some of it. But that's from, again, um, Wright's book, Communal Reading in the Time of Jesus. Fantastic book. There's just so much, so much to it. Now, Ovid writes, um, who was an ancient writer, quote, you too, plebeian hands, receive, if you may, our verses dismayed by the shame of the rejection, end quote. And that's in his work on Trista 1182. Uh, and I... Got that from um, Wright. Ovid thus assumes that the common folk, that is the plebeians, um, would be able to read his book despite the fact that his work was rejected at local libraries. Quote, even if this readership is rarely petitioned or acknowledged by the elite literary culture, evidence like this confirms it existed and quantity enough to petition, end quote. And that's right again. Um, further, graffiti in various locations, such as Pompeii, written by prostitute, further indicates a literacy rate that's higher than uh, typically assumed. And Witherington states, quote, there seems to be have been more writings on the wall than inhabitants within them, which may suggest a higher level of literacy than previously suspected in the Greco-Roman world, end quote. And this, again, can be coupled with the other evidences, including the inscriptions in Philippi, which were meant to be read. So when it comes to the setting of readings, we find a range of occurrences. From the public community center, such as a synagogue, because the synagogue was a public community center, essentially, uh, to the home, uh, private communal readings, and to street corners. Uh, in the New Testament, we find this type of communal reading occurring in lecture halls, such as Acts 19.9, and in homes in Luke 1.40. And I think that that's going to wrap up our um, first episode on the subject. Our next episode will go into Jewish life and reading, talking about how the Jews were people of the book. And then we'll talk about the early New Testament communities. And then we'll talk about the distribution of New Testament manuscripts. And then we'll talk about some early Christian conceptions on the scripture. And then we'll wrap up with conclusions. So how can I wrap up this particular episode uh, is by saying that rumors of illiteracy are greatly exaggerated. And reading communities were heavily prominent. And so there was still an awareness of literary works and access to those works via community readings or through memorization or oral proclamation. There's a lot of access to these types of works. Um, and we're going to go into, uh, again, the Jewish and Christian communities and how we can see this furthered in order to better defend the thesis that Christians had access to the contents of scripture, even if they didn't have the physical copies of the scriptures themselves personally in their homes. So I hope that this was interesting to some Degree, if you are a patron in the second tier and up, you have access to this entire PDF. It's 27 pages. If you read it and you find typos that you want me to fix, uh, let me know and I'll fix it for you. 
and I'll republish it on the same link because, um, you know, I'm not a professional proofreader. I have to do with what I can and I miss things. So if you're a patron, you have access to this entire document and you can look at the notes and um, read along with it and look at the, the footnotes and better access to resources and so on and so forth. So again, I hope that this was interesting. I hope it really kind of makes you think a little bit more about how you may be perceiving the ancient world. Um, because I know that whenever I would originally think about the ancient world, I, I rarely thought of it as having reading events everywhere. Furthermore, we typically know that there's inscriptions everywhere, but we never stop to really think about, well, but who are they for? Who, who's reading these things? Um, and then we think about, well, the elites were the ones who were literate, but what do people always try to do? They always try to emulate the elites, right? Um, so that's an interesting uh, perspective there too. There are actually, it's interesting, various like virtual tours you can take of different civilizations. And I remember taking a virtual one of ancient Greece. And as I was walking through the, the cities, quote unquote walking, you, you can't help but notice the noise around from people talking whether it's like discourse or a theater or um, like a public reading. And whenever you read these ancient writers who talk about the deafening noise of communal reading events and how it was a nuisance, and then you have people making fun of them, it's just very interesting. And we don't typically think of that um, because we our book culture is very privileged, to say the least. The fact that we can um, print, copy, and keep books the way we do is pretty amazing. But it's it's wrong to assume that because it looks different than ours that they didn't have a book culture, right? Um, especially whenever we think about the Great Library of Alexandria that we unfortunately don't have access to because of the fire. Um, but it's all just fascinating stuff. I hope that you find this interesting and that it sparks some interest in the topic for you. And that's all I have for you uh, for this week. So next week we'll wrap up the people of the book part two and yeah, that's it. So God bless you all and have a wonderful, wonderful weekend.